Autobiography of a Yogi Paramahansa Yogananda With a preface by Dr. W. Y. Evans Vence, Jesus College, Oxford, author and translator of many classic works on yoga and the wisdom traditions of the East, including Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. From the preface. The value of Yogananda's autobiography is greatly enhanced by the fact that it is one of the few books in English about the wise men of India which have been written not by a journalist or foreigner, but one of their own race and training. In short, a book about yogis by a yogi. As an eyewitness recountal of the extraordinary lives and powers of modern Hindu saints, the book has importance both timely and timeless. To its illustrious author, whom I have had the pleasure of knowing in both India and America, may every reader render due appreciation and gratitude. His unusual life document is certainly one of the most revealing of the depths of the Hindu mind and heart, and of the spiritual wealth of India, ever to be published in the West. Autobiography of a Yogi Chapter 1 My Parents and Early Life the characteristic features of Indian culture have long been a search for ultimate verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. My own path led to a Christ-like sage. His beautiful life was chiselled for the ages. He was one of the great masters who are India's truest wealth. Emerging in every generation, they have bulwarked their land against the fate of ancient Egypt and Babylonia. I find my earliest memories covering the anachronistic features of a previous incarnation. Clear recollections came to me of a distant life, in which I had been a yogi amid the Himalayan snows. These glimpses of the past, by some dimensionless link, also afforded me a glimpse of the future. I still remember the helpless humiliations of infancy. I was resentfully conscious of being unable to walk and to express myself freely. Prayerful surges arose within me as I realized my bodily impotence. My strong emotional life was mentally expressed in words of many languages. Amid the inward confusion of tongues, I gradually became accustomed to hearing the Bengali syllables of my people. The beguiling scope of an infant's mind adultly considered to be limited to toys and toes. Psychological ferment and my unresponsive body brought me to many obstinate crying spells. I recall the general family bewilderment at my distress. Happier memories, too, crowded on me, my mother's caresses, and my first attempts at lisping phrase and toddling step. These early triumphs, usually forgotten quickly, are yet a natural basis of self-confidence. My far-reaching memories are not unique. Many yogis are known to have retained their self-consciousness without interruption by the dramatic transition to and from life and death. If man be solely a body, its loss indeed ends his identity. But if prophets down the millenniums spake with truth, man is essentially a soul, incorporeal, and omnipresent. Although odd clear memories of infancy are not extremely rare. During travels in numerous lands, I have heard very early recollections from the lips of voracious men and women. 
I was born on January the 5th, 1893, in Gorakhpur, in northeastern India, near the Himalaya mountains. There my first eight years were passed. We were eight children, four boys and four girls. I, Mukunda Lal Ghosh, was the second son and the fourth child. Father and mother were Bengalis, of the Kshatriya caste, the second caste, originally that of rulers and warriors. Both were blessed with saintly nature. Their mutual love, tranquil and dignified, never expressed itself frivolously. A perfect parental harmony was the calm centre of the revolving tumult of eight young lives. Father, Bhagabhati Charan Ghosh, was kind, grave, at times stern. Loving him dearly, we children yet observed a certain reverential distance. An outstanding mathematician and logician, he was guided principally by his intellect. But mother was a queen of hearts, and taught us only through love. After her death, father displayed more of his inner tenderness. I noticed then that his gaze often seemed to be metamorphosed into my mother's gaze. In mother's presence, we children made an early bittersweet acquaintance with the scriptures. Mother would resourcefully summon from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana suitable tales to meet the exigencies of discipline. On these occasions, chastisement and instruction went hand in hand. As a gesture of respect for father, in the afternoons, mother would dress us children carefully to welcome him home from the office. He held a position similar to that of a vice president in one of India's large companies, Bengal Nagpur Railway. His work involved travelling. Our family lived in several cities during my childhood. Mother held an open hand toward the needy. Father was also kindly disposed, but his respect for law and order extended to the budget. One fortnight, mother spent in feeding the poor more than father's monthly income. All I ask, please, father said, is that you keep your charities within a reasonable limit. Even a gentle rebuke from her husband was grievous to mother. Not hinting to the children at any disagreement, she ordered a hackney carriage. Goodbye. I'm going away to my mother's home. Ancient ultimatum. We broke into astounded lamentations. Our maternal uncle arrived opportunely. He whispered to father some sage counsel, garnered no doubt from the ages. After father had made a few conciliatory remarks, mother happily dismissed the cab. Thus ended the only trouble I ever noticed between my parents. But I recall a characteristic discussion. Please give me ten rupees for a hapless woman who has just arrived at the house. Mother's smile had its own persuasion. Why ten rupees? One is enough, father added a justification. When my father and grandparents died suddenly, I had my first experience of poverty. My only breakfast, before walking miles to my school, was a small banana. Later, at the university, I was in such need that I applied to a wealthy judge for aid of one rupee per month. He declined, remarking that even a rupee 
is important. How bitterly you recall the denial of that rupee. Mother's heart had an instant logic. Do you want this woman also to remember painfully your refusal of ten rupees, which she needs urgently? You win. With the immemorial gesture of vanquished husbands, he opened his wallet. Here is a ten rupee note. Give it to her with my goodwill. Father tended first to say no to any new proposal. His attitude towards the stranger who so readily had won mother's sympathy was an example of his customary caution. An aversion to instant acceptance is really only honouring the principle of due reflection. I always found father reasonable and evenly balanced in his judgments. If I could bolster up my numerous requests with one or two good arguments, he would invariably put within my reach the coveted goal, whether a vacation trip or a new motorcycle. Father was a strict disciplinarian to his children in their early years, but his attitude towards himself was truly Spartan. He never visited the theatre, for instance, but sought his recreation in various spiritual practices and in reading the Bhagavad Gita. Shunning all luxuries, he would cling to one old pair of shoes until they were useless. His sons bought automobiles after they came into popular use, but father was content with the trolley car for his daily ride to the office. Father was not interested in the accumulation of money for the sake of power. On one occasion, after he had organized the Calcutta Urban Bank, he refused to benefit himself by holding any of its shares. He had simply wished to perform a civic duty in his spare time. Several years after father had retired on a pension, an accountant from England came to India to examine the books of Bengal Nagpur Railway. The amazed investigator discovered that father had never applied for overdue bonuses. He did the work of three men, the accountant told the company. He has rupees one hundred and twenty-five thousand. $41,250, owing to him as back compensation. The treasurer sent father a cheque for that amount. My parent thought so little about the matter that he forgot to mention it to the family. Much later he was questioned by my youngest brother, Bishnu, who had noticed the large deposit on a bank statement. Why be elated by material profit, father replied. The one who pursues a goal of even-mindedness is neither jubilant with gain nor depressed by loss. He knows that man arrives penniless in this world and departs without a single rupee. Early in their married life, my parents became disciples of a great master, Lahiri Mahashai of Banares. This association strengthened father's naturally ascetical temperament. Mother once made a remarkable admission to my eldest sister, Roma. Your father and I sleep together as man and wife only once a year, for the purpose of having children. Father met Lahiri Mahasha through Abhinash Babu, an employee of a branch line of Bengal Nagpur Railway. In Gorakhpur, Abhinash Babu instructed my young ears with engrossing tales of many Indian saints. He invariably concluded with a tribute to the superior glories of his own guru. Did you ever hear of the extraordinary circumstances under which your father became a disciple of Lahiri Mahashai? It was on a lazy summer afternoon, 
as Abby Nash and I sat together in the compound of my home, that he put this intriguing question. I shook my head with a smile of anticipation. Years ago, before you were born, I asked my superior officer, your father, to give me a week's leave from my office duties in order to visit my guru in Benares. Your father ridiculed my plan. Are you going to become a religious fanatic, he inquired. Concentrate on your office work if you want to forge ahead. Sadly walking home along a woodland path that day, I met your father in a palanquin. He dismissed his servants and conveyance and fell into step beside me. Seeking to console me, he pointed out the advantages of striving for worldly success. But I heard him listlessly. My heart was repeating, Lahiri Mahashai, I cannot live without seeing you. Our path took us to the edge of a tranquil field, where the rays of the late afternoon sun were crowning the tall ripple of the wild grass. We paused in admiration. There in the field, only a few yards from us, the form of my great guru suddenly appeared. Bhagabhati, you are too hard on your employee. His voice was resonant in our astounded ears. He vanished as mysteriously as he had come. On my knees, I was exclaiming, Lahiri Mahashaya, Lahiri Mahashaya. For a few moments, your father was motionless with stupefaction. Abinash, not only do I give you leave, but I give myself leave to start for Banaras tomorrow. I must know this great Lahiri Mahashai, who is able to materialize himself at will in order to intercede for you. I will take my wife and ask this master to initiate us in his spiritual path. Will you guide us to him? Of course. Joy filled me at the miraculous answer to my prayer and the quick, favorable turn of events. The next evening, your parents and I entrained for Benares. Reaching there on the following day, we took a horse cart for some distance, then had to walk through narrow lanes to my guru's secluded home. Entering his little parlor, we bowed before the master, and locked in his habitual lotus posture. He blinked his piercing eyes, and leveled them on your father. Bhagabhati, you are too hard on your employee. His words were the same as those he had used two days before in the grassy field. He added, I am glad that you have permitted Abinash to visit me, and that you and your wife have accompanied him. To their joy, he initiated your parents in the spiritual practice of Kriya Yoga. Your father and I, as brother disciples, have been close friends since the memorable day of the vision. Lahiri Mahashai took a definite interest in your own birth. Your life shall surely be linked with his own. The Master's blessing never fails. Lahiri Mahashai left this world shortly after I had entered it. His picture, in an ornate frame, always graced our family altar in the various cities to which father was transferred by his office. Many a morning and evening found mother and me meditating before an improvised shrine, offering flowers dipped in fragrant sandalwood paste. With frankincense and myrrh, as well as our united devotions, we honoured the divinity that had found full expression in Lahiri Mahasya.
His picture had a surpassing influence over my life. As I grew, the thought of the master grew with me. In meditation, I would often see his photographic image emerge from its small frame, and taking a living form, sit before me. When I attempted to touch the feet of his luminous body, it would change and again become the picture. As childhood slipped into boyhood, I found Lahiri Mahashai transformed in my mind from a little image cribbed in a frame to a living, enlightening presence. I frequently prayed to him in moments of trial or confusion, finding within me his solacing direction. At first I grieved because he was no longer physically living. As I began to discover his secret omnipresence, I lamented no more. He had often written to those of his disciples who were over-anxious to see him. Why come to view my flesh and bones, when I am ever within range of your kutasta, spiritual sight? At about the age of eight, I was blessed with a wonderful healing through the photograph of Lahiri Mahashai. This experience gave intensification to my love. While at our family estate in Itchapur, Bengal, I was stricken with Asiatic cholera. My life was despaired of. The doctors could do nothing. At my bedside, Mother frantically motioned me to look at Lahiri Mahasya's picture on the wall above my head. Bow to him mentally. She knew I was too feeble even to lift my hands in salutation. If you really show your devotion and inwardly kneel before him, your life will be spared. I gazed at his photograph and saw there a blinding light enveloping my body and the entire room. My nausea and other uncontrollable symptoms disappeared. I was well. At once I felt strong enough to bend over and touch Mother's feet in appreciation of her immeasurable faith in her guru. Mother pressed her head repeatedly against the little picture. O oh, omnipresent Master, I thank Thee that Thy light hath healed my son. I realized that she had witnessed the luminous blaze through which I had instantly recovered from a usually fatal disease. One of my most precious possessions is that same photograph. Given to Father by Lahiri Mahasha himself, it carries a holy vibration. The picture had a miraculous origin. I heard this story from Father's brother disciple, Kali Kumar Roy. It appears that the Master had an aversion to being photographed. Over his protest, a picture was once taken of him in a group of devotees, including Kali Kumar Roy. It was an amazed photographer who discovered that the plate, which had clear images of all the disciples, revealed nothing more than a blank space in the centre where he had reasonably expected to find the outlines of Lahiri Mahashai. The phenomenon was widely discussed. A student, who was an expert photographer, Ganga Darbabu, boasted that the fugitive figure would not escape him. The next morning, as the guru sat in lotus posture on a wooden bench with a screen behind him, Ganga Darbabu arrived with his equipment. Taking every precaution for success, he greedily exposed twelve plates. On each one he soon found the imprint of the wooden bench and screen 
but once again the master's form was missing. With tears and shattered pride, Ganga Dar Babu sought out his guru. It was many hours before Lahiri Mahasha broke his silence with a pregnant comment. I am spirit. Can your camera reflect the omnipresent invisible? I see it cannot, but holy sir, I lovingly desire a picture of your bodily temple. My vision has been narrow until today I did not realize that in you the spirit fully dwells. Come then. Tomorrow morning, I will pose for you. Again, the photographer focused his camera. This time, the sacred figure, not cloaked with mysterious imperceptibility, was sharp on the plate. The master never posed for another picture. At least, I have seen none. The photograph is reproduced in this book. Lahiri Mahasha's fair features of a universal caste hardly suggest to what race he belonged. The joy of God communion is slightly revealed in his enigmatic smile. His eyes, half open to denote a nominal interest in the outer world, are also half closed, indicating his absorption in inner bliss. Oblivious of the poor lures of the earth, he was fully awake at all times to the spiritual problems of seekers who approached for his bounty. Shortly after my healing through the potency of the Guru's picture, I had an influential spiritual vision. Sitting on my bed one morning, I fell into a deep reverie. What is behind the darkness of closed eyes? This probing thought came powerfully into my mind. An immense flash of light at once manifested to my inner gaze. Divine shapes of saints, sitting in meditation posture in mountain caves, formed like miniature cinema pictures on the large screen of radiance within my forehead. Who are you? I spoke aloud. We are the Himalayan yogis. The celestial response is difficult to describe. My heart was thrilled. Ah, I long to go to the Himalayas and become like you. The vision vanished, but the silvery beams expanded in ever-widening circles to infinity. What is this wondrous glow? I am Ishwara. I am light. The voice was as murmuring clouds. I want to be one with thee. Out of the slow dwindling of my divine ecstasy, I salvaged a permanent legacy of inspiration to seek God. He is eternal, ever new joy. This memory persisted long after the day of rapture. Another early recollection is outstanding, and literally so, for I bear the scar to this day. My elder sister Uma and I were seated in the early morning under a neem tree in our Gorakhpur compound. She was helping me in my study of a Bengali primer. What time I could spare my gaze from the nearby parrots eating ripe margosa fruit, Uma complained of a boil on her leg and fetched a jar of ointment. I smeared a bit of the salve on my forearm. Why do you use medicine on a healthy arm? Well, sis, I feel I'm going to have a boil tomorrow. I am testing your ointment on the spot where the boil will appear, 
You little liar. Sis, don't call me a liar until you see what happens in the morning. Indignation filled me. Uma, unimpressed, thrice repeated her taunt. An adamant resolution sounded in my voice as I made slow reply. By the power of will in me, I say that tomorrow I shall have a fairly large boil in this exact place on my arm, and your boil shall swell to twice its present size. Morning found me with a stalwart boil on the indicated spot. The dimensions of Uma's boil had doubled. With a shriek, my sister rushed to mother. Mukunda has become a necromancer. Gravely, mother instructed me never to use the power of words for doing harm. I have always remembered her counsel and followed it. My boil was surgically treated. A noticeable scar left by the doctor's incision is present today. On my right forearm is a constant reminder of the power in man's sheer word. Those simple and apparently harmless phrases to Uma, spoken with deep concentration, had possessed sufficient hidden force to explode like bombs and to produce definite, though injurious, effects. I understood later that the explosive vibratory power in speech could be wisely directed to free one's life from difficulties and thus operate without scar or rebuke. Our family moved to Lahore in the Punjab. There I acquired a picture of the Divine Mother in the form of the goddess Kali, a symbol of God in the aspect of eternal Mother Nature. It sanctified a small informal shrine on the balcony of our home. An unequivocal conviction came over me that fulfilment would crown any of my prayers uttered in that sacred spot. Standing there with Uma one day, I watched two boys flying kites over the roofs of two buildings that were separated from our house by an extremely narrow lane. Why are you so quiet? Uma pushed me playfully. I am just thinking how wonderful it is that Divine Mother gives me whatever I ask. I suppose she would give you those two kites, my sister laughed derisively. Why not? I began silent prayers for their possession. Matches are played in India with kites whose strings are covered with glue and ground glass. Each player attempts to sever the string held by his opponent. A freed kite sails over the roofs. There is great fun in catching it. As Uma and I were on a roofed, recessed balcony, it seemed impossible that a loosed kite could come into our hands. Its string would naturally dangle over the roof. The players across the lane began their match. One string was cut. Immediately the kite floated in my direction. Owing to a sudden abatement of the breeze, the kite remained stationary for a moment, during which its string became firmly entangled with a cactus plant on top of the opposite house. A long, perfect loop was formed for my seizure. I handed the prize to Uma. It was just an extraordinary accident and not an answer to your prayer. If the other kite comes to you, then I shall believe. Sister's dark eyes conveyed more amazement than her words. I continued my prayers with intensity. A forcible tug by the other player resulted in the abrupt loss of his kite. 
it headed toward me, dancing in the wind. My helpful assistant, the cactus plant, again secured the kite string in the necessary loop by which I could grasp it. I presented my second trophy to Uma. Indeed, Divine Mother listens to you. This is all too uncanny for me. Sister bolted away like a frightened fawn. Chapter 2 My Mother's Death and the Mystic Amulet My mother's greatest desire was the marriage of my elder brother. Ah, when I behold the face of Ananta's wife, I shall find heaven on this earth. I frequently heard mother express in these words her strong Indian sentiment for family continuity. I was about eleven years old at the time of Ananta's betrothal. Mother was in Calcutta, joyously supervising the wedding preparations. Father and I alone remained at our home in Bareilly in northern India, whence father had been transferred after two years at Lahore. I had previously witnessed the splendour of nuptial rites for my two elder sisters, Roma and Uma, but for Ananta, as the eldest son, plans were truly elaborate. Mother was welcoming numerous relatives, daily arriving in Calcutta from distant homes. She lodged them comfortably in a large, newly acquired house at 50 Amherst Street. Everything was in readiness. The banquet delicacies, the gay throne on which brother was to be carried to the home of the bride-to-be, the rows of colourful lights, the mammoth cardboard elephants and camels, the English, Scottish and Indian orchestras, the professional entertainers, the priests for the ancient rituals. Father and I, in gala spirits, were planning to join the family in time for the ceremony. Shortly before the great day, however, I had an ominous vision. It was in Bareilly, on a midnight. As I slept beside father on the piazza of our bungalow, I was awakened by a peculiar flutter of the mosquito netting over the bed. The flimsy curtains parted, and I saw the beloved form of my mother. Awaken your father. Her voice was only a whisper. Take the first available train at four o'clock this morning. Rush to Calcutta if you would see me. The wraith-like figure vanished. Father, father, mother is dying. The terror in my tone aroused him instantly. I sobbed out the fatal tidings. Never mind that hallucination of yours. Father gave his characteristic negation to a new situation. Your mother is in excellent health. If we get any bad news, we shall leave tomorrow. You shall never forgive yourself for not starting now. Anguish caused me to add bitterly, nor shall I ever forgive you. The melancholy morning came with explicit words. Mother dangerously ill. Marriage postponed. Come at once. Father and I left distractedly. One of my uncles met us en route at a transfer point. The train thundered towards us, looming with telescopic increase. From my inner tumult, an abrupt determination arose to hurl myself on the railway tracks. Already bereft, I felt, of my mother, I could not endure a world suddenly bare to the bone. I loved mother as my dearest friend on earth. Her solacing black eyes had been my refuge in the trifling tragedies of childhood. 
Does she yet live? I stopped for one last question to my uncle. He was not slow to interpret the desperation in my face. Of course she is alive. But I scarcely believed him. When we reached our Calcutta home, it was only to confront the stunning mystery of death. I collapsed into an almost lifeless state. Years passed before any reconciliation entered my heart. Storming the very gates of heaven, my cries at last summoned the Divine Mother. Her words brought final healing to my separating wounds. It is I who have watched over thee, life after life, in the tenderness of many mothers. See in my gaze the two black eyes, the lost beautiful eyes thou seekest. Father and I returned to Bareilly soon after the crematory rites for the well-beloved. Early every morning I made a pathetic memorial pilgrimage to a large shioli tree which shaded the smooth green-gold lawn before our bungalow. In poetical moments I thought that the white shioli flowers were strewing themselves with a willing devotion over the grassy altar. Mingling tears with the dew, I often observed a strange, otherworldly light emerging from the dawn. Intense pangs of longing for God assailed me. I felt powerfully drawn to the Himalayas. One of my cousins, fresh from a period of travel in the Holy Hills, visited us in Bareilly. I listened eagerly to his tales about the high mountain abode of yogis and swamis. Let us run away to the Himalayas. My suggestion one day to Dwarka Prasad, the young son of our landlord in Bareilly, fell on unsympathetic ears. He revealed my plan to my elder brother, who had just arrived to see father. Instead of laughing lightly over this impractical scheme of a small boy, Ananta made it a definite point to ridicule me. Where is your orange robe? You can't be a swami without that. But I was inexplicably thrilled by his words. They brought me a clear picture, that of myself as a monk, roaming about India. Perhaps they awakened memories of a past life. In any case, I realized with what natural ease I would wear the garb of the anciently founded monastic order. Chatting one morning with Dwarka, I felt a love for God descending with avalanche-like force. My companion was only partly attentive to the ensuing eloquence, but I was wholeheartedly listening to myself. I fled that afternoon towards Nainital in the Himalayan foothills. Ananta gave determined chase. I was forced to return, sadly, to Bareilly. The only pilgrimage permitted me was the customary one at dawn to the Shioli tree. My heart wept for my two lost mothers, one human, one divine. The rent left in the family fabric by mother's death was irreparable. Father never remarried during his nearly forty remaining years. Assuming the difficult role of father-mother to his little flock, he grew noticeably more tender, more approachable. With calmness and insight, he solved the various family problems. After office hours, he retired like a hermit to the cell of his room, practicing Kriya Yoga in a sweet serenity.
Long after mother's death, I attempted to engage an English nurse to attend to details that would make my parents' life more comfortable. But father shook his head. Service to me ended with your mother. His eyes were remote with a lifelong devotion. I will not accept ministrations from any other woman. Fourteen months after mother's passing, I learned that she had left me a momentous message. Ananta had been present at her deathbed and had recorded her words. Though she had asked that the disclosure be made to me in one year, my brother had delayed. He was soon to leave Bareilly for Calcutta to marry the girl that mother had chosen for him. One evening he summoned me to his side. Mukunda, I have been reluctant to give you strange tidings. Ananta's tone held a note of resignation. My fear was to inflame your desire to leave home, but in any case you are bristling with divine ardour. When I captured you recently on your way to the Himalayas, I came to a definite resolve. I must not further postpone the fulfilment of my solemn promise. My brother handed me a small box and delivered mother's message. Let these words be my final blessing, my beloved son Mukunda, mother had said. The hour is here when I must relate a number of phenomenal events following your birth. I first knew your destined path when you were but a babe in my arms. I carried you then to the home of my guru in Banaras. Almost hidden behind a throng of disciples, I could barely see Lahiri Mahasha as he sat in deep meditation. While I patted you, I was praying that the great Guru take notice and bestow a blessing. As my silent devotional demand grew in intensity, he opened his eyes and beckoned me to approach. The others made a way for me. I bowed at the sacred feet. Lahiri Mahashai seated you on his lap, placing his hand on your forehead by way of spiritually baptizing you. Little mother, thy son will be a yogi. As a spiritual engine, he will carry many souls to God's kingdom. My heart leapt with joy to find my secret prayer granted by the omniscient guru. Shortly before your birth, he had told me you would follow his path. Later, my son, your vision of the great light was known to me and your sister Roma, as from the next room we observed you motionless on the bed. Your little face was illuminated, your voice rang with iron resolve as you spoke of going to the Himalayas in quest of the divine. In these ways, dear son, I came to know that your road lies far from worldly ambitions. The most singular event in my life brought further confirmation, an event which now impels my deathbed message. It was an interview with a sage in the Punjab. While our family was living in Lahore, one morning the servant came into my room. Mistress, a strange sadhu is here. He insists that he see the mother of Mukunda. These simple words struck a profound chord within me. I went at once to greet the visitor. Bowing at his feet, I sensed that before me 
was a true man of God. Mother, he said, the great masters wish you to know that your stay on earth shall not be long. Your next illness shall prove to be your last. There was a silence, during which I felt no alarm, but only a vibration of great peace. Finally he addressed me again. You are to be the custodian of a certain silver amulet. I will not give it to you today. To demonstrate the truth in my words, the talisman shall materialize in your hand tomorrow, as you meditate. On your deathbed, you must instruct your eldest son, Ananta, to keep the amulet for one year and then to hand it over to your second son. Mukunda will understand the meaning of the talisman from the Great Ones. He shall receive it about the time he is ready to renounce all worldly hopes and to start his vital search for God. When he has retained the amulet for some years, and when it has served its purpose, it shall vanish. Even if kept in the most secret spot, it shall return whence it came. I proffered alms to the saint and bowed before him in great reverence. Not taking the offering, he departed with a blessing. The next evening, as I sat with folded hands in meditation, a silver amulet materialized between my palms, even as the sadhu had promised. It made itself known by a cold, smooth touch. I have jealously guarded it for more than two years, and now leave it in Ananta's keeping. Do not grieve for me as I shall have been ushered by my great guru into the arms of the infinite. Farewell, my child. The cosmic mother will protect you. A blaze of illumination came over me with possession of the amulet. Many dormant memories awakened. The talisman, round and anciently quaint, was covered with Sanskrit characters. I understood that it came from teachers of past lives, who were invisibly guiding my steps. A further significance there was indeed, but one may not fully unveil the heart of an amulet. How the talisman finally vanished amidst deeply unhappy circumstances of my life, and how its loss was a herald of my gain of a guru, may not be told in this chapter. But the small boy, thwarted in his attempts to reach the Himalayas, daily travelled far on the wings of his amulet. Chapter 3 The Saint with Two Bodies Father, if I promise to return home without coercion, may I take a sightseeing trip to Benares? My keen love of travel was seldom hindered by father. He permitted me, even as a mere boy, to visit many cities and pilgrimage spots. Usually one or more of my friends accompanied me. We would travel comfortably on first-class passes provided by father. His position as a railroad official was fully satisfactory to the nomads in the family. Father promised to give my request due consideration. The next day he summoned me and held out a round-trip pass from Bareilly to Benares, a number of rupee notes and two letters. I have a business matter to propose to a Benares friend, Kedar Nath Babu. Unfortunately, I have lost his address, but I believe you will be able to get this letter to him through our common friend, Swami 
Pranabhananda. The Swami, my brother disciple, has attained an exalted spiritual stature. You will benefit by his company. This second note will serve as your introduction. Father's eyes twinkled as he added, Mind, no more flights from home. I set forth with the zest of my twelve years, though time has never dimmed my delight in new scenes and strange faces. Reaching Banaras, I proceeded immediately to the Swami's residence. The front door was open. I made my way to a long, hall-like room on the second floor. A rather stout man, wearing only a loincloth, was seated in lotus posture on a slightly raised platform. His head and unwrinkled face were clean-shaven. A beatific smile played about his lips. To dispel my thought that I had intruded, he greeted me as an old friend. Baba Anand, bliss to my dear one. His welcome was given heartily in a childlike voice. I knelt and touched his feet. Are you Swami Pranabhananda? He nodded. Are you Bhagabhati's son? His words were out before I had time to get Father's letter from my pocket. In astonishment, I handed him the note of introduction, which now seemed superfluous. Of course, I will locate Kedarnath Babu for you. The saint again surprised me by his clairvoyance. He glanced at the letter and made a few affectionate references to my parent. You know, I am enjoying two pensions. One is by the recommendation of your father, for whom I once worked in the railway office. The other is by the recommendation of my heavenly father, for whom I have conscientiously finished my earthly duties in life. I found this remark very obscure. What kind of pension, sir, do you receive from the heavenly father? Does he drop money in your lap? He laughed. I mean a pension of fathomless peace, a reward for many years of deep meditation. I never crave money now. My few material needs are amply provided for. Later you will understand the significance of a second pension. Abruptly terminating our conversation, the saint became gravely motionless. A sphinx-like air enveloped him. At first his eyes sparkled, as if observing something of interest, then grew dull. I felt abashed at his porcelaquy. He had not yet told me how I might meet Father's friend. A trifle restlessly, I looked about me in the bare room, empty except for us two. My idle gaze took in his wooden sandals, lying under the platform seat. Little sir, don't get worried. The man you wish to see will be with you in half an hour. The yogi was reading my mind, a feat not too difficult at the moment. Again, he fell into inscrutable silence. When my watch informed me that thirty minutes had elapsed, the Swami aroused himself. I think Kedarnath Babu is nearing the door, he said. I heard somebody coming up the stairs. An amazed incomprehension arose suddenly. My thoughts raced in confusion. How is it possible that Father's friend has been summoned to this place without the help of the messenger? The Swami has spoken to no one but me since my arrival. I unceremoniously quitted the room and descended the steps. Halfway down I met a thin, fair-skinned man of medium height. 
He appeared to be in a hurry. Are you Kedar Nath Babu? Excitement coloured my voice. Yes. Are you not Bagbati's son, who has been waiting here to meet me? He smiled in friendly fashion. Sir, how do you happen to come here? I felt baffled, resentment over his inexplicable presence. Everything is mysterious today. Less than an hour ago, I had just finished my bath in the Ganges when Swami Pranabhananda approached me. I have no idea how he knew I was there at that time. Bhagbati's son is waiting for you in my apartment, he said. Will you come with me? I gladly agreed. As we proceeded hand in hand, the Swami in his wooden sandals was strangely able to outpace me, though I wore these stout walking shoes. How long will it take you to reach my place? Pranabhanandaji suddenly halted to ask me this question. About half an hour. I have something else to do at present. He gave me an enigmatical glance. I must leave you behind. You can join me in my house, where Bhagavati-san and I will be awaiting you. Before I could remonstrate, he dashed swiftly past me and disappeared in the crowd. I walked here as fast as possible. This explanation only increased my bewilderment. I inquired how long he had known the Swami. We met a few times last year, but not recently. I was very glad to see him again today at the bathing ghat. I cannot believe my ears. Am I losing my mind? Did you meet him in a vision, or did you actually see him touch his hand and hear the sound of his feet? I don't know what you're driving at. He flushed angrily. I'm not lying to you. Can't you understand that only through the Swami could I have known you were waiting at this place for me? Why, that man, Swami Pranabhananda, has not left my sight a moment since I first came about an hour ago. I blurted out the whole story and repeated the conversations the Swami and I had had. His eyes opened wide. Are we living in this material age or are we dreaming? I never expected to witness such a miracle in my life. I thought this Swami was just an ordinary man, and now I find he can materialize an extra body and work through it. Together we entered the saint's room. Kedarnath Babu pointed to the shoes under the platform seat. Look, those are the very sandals he was wearing at the gut, he whispered. He was clad only in a loincloth, just as I see him now. As the visitor bowed before him, the saint turned to me with a quizzical smile. Why are you stupefied at all this? The subtle unity of the phenomenal world is not hidden from true yogis. I instantly see and converse with my disciples in distant Calcutta. They can similarly transcend at will every obstacle of gross matter. It was probably in an effort to stir spiritual ardour in my young breast that the Swami had condescended to tell me of his powers of astral radio and television. But instead of enthusiasm, I experienced only an awe-stricken fear. Inasmuch as I was destined to undertake my divine search through one particular guru, Sri Yukteswar, whom I had not yet met, I felt no inclination to accept Pranabhananda as my teacher. I glanced at him doubtfully, wondering if it were he or his counterpart before me. The master sought to banish my disquiet by bestowing a soul-awakening gaze and by some inspiring words about his guru. 
Lahiri Mahasha was the greatest yogi I ever knew. He was divinity itself in the form of flesh. If a disciple, I reflected, could materialize an extra fleshly form at will, what miracles indeed could be barred to his master? I will tell you how priceless is a guru's help. I used to meditate with another disciple for eight hours every night. We had to work at the railway office during the day. Finding difficulty in carrying on my clerical duties, I desired to devote my whole time to God. For eight years I persevered, meditating half the night. I had wonderful results. Tremendous spiritual perceptions illuminated my mind. But a little veil always remained between me and the infinite. Even with superhuman earnestness, I found the final irrevocable union to be denied me. One evening, I paid a visit to Lahiri Mahashai and pleaded for his divine intercession. My importunities continued during the entire night. Angelic Guru, my spiritual anguish is such that I can no longer bear my life without meeting the great beloved face to face. What can I do? You must meditate more profoundly. I am appealing to thee, O God, my master. I see thee materialized before me in a physical body. Bless me that I may perceive thee in thine infinite form. Lahiri Mahasha extended his hand in a benign gesture. You may go now and meditate. I have interceded for you with Brahma. Immeasurably uplifted, I returned to my home. In meditation that night, the burning goal of my life was achieved. Now I ceaselessly enjoy the spiritual pension. Never from that day has the blissful Creator remained hidden from my eyes behind any screen of delusion. Pranabhananda's face was suffused with divine light. The peace of another world entered my heart. All fear had fled. The saint made a further confidence. Some months later I returned to Lahiri Mahashai and tried to thank him for his bestowal of the infinite gift. Then I mentioned another matter. Divine Guru, I can no longer work in the office. Please release me. Brahma keeps me continuously intoxicated. Apply for a pension from your company. What reason shall I give so early in my service? Say what you feel. The next day I made my application. The doctor inquired the grounds for my premature request. At work I find an overpowering sensation rising in my spine. It permeates my whole body, unfitting me for the performance of my duties. Without further questioning, the physician recommended me highly for a pension, which I soon received. I know the divine will of Lahiri Mahasha worked through the doctor and the railroad officials, including your father. Automatically, they obeyed the great Guru's spiritual direction and freed me for a life of unbroken communion with the Beloved. After this extraordinary revelation, Swami Pranabhananda retired into one of his long silences. As I was taking leave, touching his feet reverently, he gave me his blessing. Your life belongs to the path of renunciation and yoga. I shall see you again 
with your father later on. The years brought fulfillment to both these predictions. Kedarnath Babu walked by my side in the gathering darkness. I delivered father's letter, which my companion read under a street lamp. Your father suggests that I take a position in the Calcutta office of his railway company. How pleasant to look forward to one at least of the pensions that Swami Pranabhananda enjoys. But it is impossible. I cannot leave Banaras. Alas, two bodies are not yet for me. Chapter 4 My Interrupted Flight Toward the Himalayas Leave your classroom, on some trifling pretext, and engage a hackney carriage. Stop in the lane, where no one in my house can see you. These were my final instructions to Amar Mitta, a high school friend who planned to accompany me to the Himalayas. We had chosen the following day for our flight. Precautions were necessary, as my brother, Ananta, exercised a vigilant eye. He was determined to foil the plans of escape that he suspected were uppermost in my mind. The amulet, like a spiritual yeast, was silently at work within me. I hoped to find, amid the Himalayan snows, the master whose face often appeared to me in visions. The family was living now in Calcutta, where father had been permanently transferred. Following the patriarchal Indian custom, Ananta had brought his bride to live in our home. There, in a small attic room, I engaged in daily meditations and prepared my mind for the divine search. The memorable morning arrived, with inauspicious rain. Hearing the wheels of Amar's carriage on the road, I hastily tied together a blanket, a pair of sandals, two loincloths, a string of prayer beads, Lahiri Mahasha's picture, and a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. This bundle I threw from my third-story window. I ran down the steps and passed my uncle, buying fish at the door. What is the excitement? His gaze roved suspiciously over my person. I gave him a noncommittal smile and walked to the lane. Retrieving my bundle, I joined Amar with conspiratorial caution. We drove to Chandi Chok, a merchandise centre. For months we had been saving our tiffin money to buy English clothes. Knowing that my clever brother could easily play the part of a detective, we thought to outwit him by wearing European garb. On the way to the station, we stopped for my cousin, Jotin Gosh, whom I called Jatinda. He was a new convert, longing for a guru in the Himalayas. He donned the new suit we had in readiness. Well camouflaged, we hoped. A deep elation possessed our hearts. All we need now are canvas shoes. I led my companions to a shop displaying rubber-soled footwear. Articles of leather, got only through the slaughter of animals, should be absent on this holy trip. I halted on the street to remove the leather cover from my Bhagavad Gita and the leather straps from my English-made solar topi helmet. At the station, we bought tickets to Burdwan, where we planned to transfer for Hardwar in the Himalayan foothills. As soon as the train, like ourselves, was in flight, I gave utterance to a few of my glorious anticipations. 
Just imagine, I ejaculated, we shall be initiated by the masters and experience the trance of cosmic consciousness. Our flesh will be charged with such magnetism that wild animals of the Himalayas will come tamely near us. Tigers will be no more than meek house-cats awaiting our caresses. This remark, picturing a prospect I considered entrancing, both metaphorically and literally, brought an enthusiastic smile from Amar. But Jatinda averted his gaze, directing it through the window at the scampering landscape. Let the money be divided in three portions, Jatinda broke a long silence with this suggestion. Each of us should buy his own ticket at Burdvan. Thus, no one at the station will surmise that we are running away together. I unsuspectingly agreed. At dusk, our train stopped at Burdvan. Jatinda entered the ticket office. Amar and I sat on the platform. We waited fifteen minutes, then made unavailing inquiries. Searching in all directions, we shouted Jatinda's name with the urgency of fright, but he'd faded into the dark unknown surrounding the little station. I was completely unnerved, shocked, to a peculiar numbness, that God would countenance this depressing episode. The romantic occasion of my first carefully planned flight after him was cruelly marred. Amar, we must return home. I was weeping like a child. Jatinda's callous departure is an ill omen. This trip is doomed to failure. Is this your love for the Lord? Can't you stand the little test of a treacherous companion? Through Amar's suggestion of a divine test, my heart steadied itself. We refreshed ourselves with famous Burdvan sweetmeats, sitabhog, food for the goddess, and motichur, nuggets of sweet pearl. In a few hours we entrained for Hardwar via Bareilly. Changing trains the following day at Mogul Serai, we discussed a vital matter as we waited on the platform. Amar, we may soon be closely questioned by railroad officials. I am not underrating my brother's ingenuity. No matter what the outcome, I will not speak untruth. All I ask of you, Mukunda, is to keep still. Don't laugh or grin while I'm talking. At this moment a European station agent accosted me. He waved a telegram whose import I immediately grasped. Are you running away from home in anger? No. I was glad his choice of words permitted me to make emphatic reply. Not anger, but divinest melancholy was responsible, I knew, for my unconventional behaviour. The official then turned to Amar. The duel of wits that followed hardly permitted me to maintain the counselled stoic gravity. Where is the third boy? The man injected a full ring of authority into his voice. Come now, speak the truth. Sir, I notice you are wearing eyeglasses. Can't you see that we are only two? Amar smiled impudently. I am not a magician. I can't conjure up a third boy. The official, noticeably disconcerted by this impertinence, sought a new field of attack. What is your name? I am called Thomas. I am the son of an English mother and a converted Christian Indian father.
What is your friend's name? I call him Thompson. By this time, my inward mirth had reached a zenith. I unceremoniously made for the train, which was providentially whistling for departure. Amar followed with the official, who was credulous and obliging enough to put us into a European compartment. It evidently pained him to think of two half-English boys travelling in the section allotted to natives. After his polite exit, I lay back on the seat and laughed uproariously. Amar wore an expression of blithe satisfaction at having outwitted a veteran European official. On the platform, I contrived to read the telegram. From my brother Ananta, it went thus: three Bengali boys in English clothes running away from home towards Hardwar via Mughal Serai. Please detain them until my arrival. Ample reward for your services. Amar, I told you not to leave marked timetables in your home. My glance was reproachful. Brother must have found one there. My friend sheepishly acknowledged the thrust. We halted briefly in Bareilly, where Dwarka Prasad awaited us with a telegram from Ananta. Dwarka tried valiantly to detain us. I convinced him that our flight had not been undertaken lightly, as on a previous occasion. Dwarka refused my invitation to set out for the Himalayas. While our train stood in the station that night, and I was half asleep, Amar was awakened by another questioning official. He too fell a victim to the hybrid charms of Thomas and Thompson. The train bore us triumphantly into a dawn arrival at Hardwar. The majestic mountains loomed invitingly in the distance. We dashed through the station and entered the freedom of city crowds. Our first act. Was to change into native costume, as Ananta had somehow penetrated our European disguise. A premonition of capture weighed on my mind. Deeming it advisable to leave Hardwar at once, we bought tickets to proceed north to Rishikesh, a soil long hallowed by the feet of many masters. I had already boarded the train while Amara lagged on the platform. He was brought to an abrupt halt by a shout from a policeman. An unwelcome guardian, the officer escorted Amar and me to a police station bungalow, and took charge of our money. He explained courteously that it was his duty to hold us until my elder brother arrived. Learning that the truant's destination had been the Himalayas, the officer related a strange story. I see you are crazy about saints. You will never meet a greater man of God than the one I saw only yesterday. My brother officer and I first encountered him five days ago. We were patrolling by the Ganges on a sharp lookout for a certain murderer. Our instructions were to capture him, dead or alive. He was known to be masquerading as a sadhu in order to rob pilgrims. A short way before us, we spied a figure which resembled the description of the criminal. He ignored our command to stop. We ran to overpower him, approaching his back. I wielded my axe with tremendous force. The man's right arm was severed almost completely from his body. Without outcry or glance at the ghastly wound, the stranger astonishingly continued his swift pace. As we jumped in front of him, he spoke quietly, "I am not the murderer you are seeking." I was deeply mortified to see that I had injured the person of a divine-looking sage. Prostrating myself at his feet, I implored his pardon 
and offered my turban cloth to staunch the heavy spurts of blood. Son, that was just an understandable mistake on your part. The saint regarded me kindly. Run along, and don't reproach yourself. The beloved mother is taking care of me. He pushed his dangling arm into its stump, and lo, it adhered. The blood inexplicably ceased to flow. Come to me under yonder tree in three days, and you will find me fully healed. Thus you will feel no remorse. Yesterday my brother officer and I went eagerly to the designated spot. The sadhu was there and allowed us to examine his arm. It bore no scar nor trace of hurt. I am going via Rishikesh to the Himalayan solitudes. The sadhu blessed us as he departed quickly. I feel that my life has been uplifted through his sanctity. The officer concluded with a pious ejaculation. His experience had obviously moved him beyond his usual depths. With an impressive gesture, he handed me a printed clipping about the miracle. In the usual garbled manner of the sensational type of newspaper, not missing a last even in India, the reporter's version was slightly exaggerated. It indicated that the sadhu had been almost decapitated. Amar and I lamented that we had missed the great yogi who could forgive his persecutor in such a Christ-like way. India, materially poor for the last two centuries, yet has an inexhaustible fund of divine wealth. Spiritual skyscrapers may occasionally be encountered by the wayside, even by worldly men like this policeman. We thanked the officer for relieving our tedium with his marvelous story. He was probably intimating that he was more fortunate than we. He had met an illuminated saint without effort. Our earnest search had ended not at the feet of a master, but in a coarse police station. So near the Himalayas, and yet in our captivity so far, I told Amar I felt doubly impelled. To seek freedom, let us slip away when opportunity offers. We can go on foot to holy Rishikesh. I smiled encouragingly, but my companion had turned pessimist as soon as the stalwart prop of our money had been taken from us. If we started a trek over such dangerous jungle land, we should finish not in the city of saints, but in the stomachs of tigers. Ananta and Amar's brother arrived after three days. Amar greeted his relative with affectionate relief. I was unreconciled. Ananta got no more from me than a severe upbraiding. I understand how you feel. My brother spoke soothingly. All I ask of you is to accompany me to Banaras to meet a certain sage and go on to Calcutta to visit our grieving father for a few days. Then. You may resume your search here for a master. Amar entered the conversation at this point to disclaim any intention of returning to Hardwar with me. He was enjoying the familiar warmth, but I knew I would never abandon the quest for my guru. Our party entrained for Banaras. There, I had a singular and instant response to a prayer. A clever scheme had been prearranged by Ananta. Before seeing me in Ardva, he had stopped in Banaras to ask a scriptural authority to interview me later. 
the pundit and his son also had promised Ananta that they would attempt to dissuade me from becoming a sannyasi. Ananta took me to their home. The son, a young man of ebullient manner, greeted me in the courtyard. He engaged me in a lengthy philosophical discourse. Professing to have a clairvoyant knowledge of my future, he discountenanced my idea of being a monk. You will meet continual misfortune and be unable to find God if you insist on deserting your ordinary responsibilities. You cannot work out your past karma without worldly experiences. Immortal words from the Bhagavad Gita rose to my lips in reply. Even he, with the worst of karma, who ceaselessly meditates on me, quickly loses the effects of his past bad actions. Becoming a high-souled being, he soon attains perennial peace. Know this for certain, the devotee who puts his trust in me never perishes. But the forceful prognostications of the young man had slightly shaken my confidence. With all the fervour of my heart, I prayed silently to God, Please solve my bewilderment and answer me right here and now, if thou dost desire me to lead the life of a renunciant or a worldly man. End of Disc 1 Chapter 4 continues on Disc 2